This morning's reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead would also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You know, most of us have uh, very ordinary lives, and being a Christian doesn't necessarily change that. In fact, many of the circumstances of the average Christian's life uh, would be somewhat indistinguishable from a non-Christian neighbor. Sure, you may uh, show up in church on a Sunday morning, and they probably usually do not. But, you know, more or less our lives are uninteresting. Some of you may have gone to better schools than others. Some didn't go to college. But whether you went to school and what school you went to and what career you chose, what your LinkedIn page looks like, what neighborhood you live in, the last movies you've seen, you know, all of these things are fairly uninteresting details of our lives. And in in most cases, uh, indistinguishable from a non-Christian neighbor. Circumstantially, not much different from a non-Christian and more or less uninteresting. If you're not an American celebrity or British royalty, you know, our lives are just not particularly noteworthy. I know that's kind of a dull place to begin a sermon, but Romans 8, Paul gives us a supernatural description of the Christian life. The way he talks about the life of the Christian is incredible. This chapter has often been viewed as the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible. If you wanted to memorize one chapter of the Bible, this would be an excellent choice. It is a mountain peak in scripture for sure. And one of the reasons it's viewed that way is because of the way Paul describes the life of the Christian in these supernatural terms. Your life circumstances may seem very ordinary, but the work of God in you is extraordinary. It's supernatural living that Paul describes here. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the God who created the world, has given life to those who are in Christ And that same spirit is empowering those who were created by God to live in accordance with his design. And that spirit speaks deep in your soul that you are a child of God. But if you have this new life in the spirit, you know, then regardless of how dull your life may seem on the surface, these new spiritual dynamics will be increasingly true for you. Uh, these are the gifts that the Spirit brings to his children. There are three of these gifts in these verses. The Spirit gives life, 
The Spirit gives holiness and the Spirit gives assurance. It's these dynamics, these gifts of the Spirit that the Spirit brings to those who are in Christ. This is what Paul tells us about in the verses that were just read. You see the first of these three things in verses 9 through 11, where Paul tells us that the Spirit gives life. Now, Paul assumes that he is talking to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see that up in Romans 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ is Paul's primary way for talking about Christians. So we primarily use that term, Christians. But that word actually rarely occurs in the New Testament. It occurs twice in the Acts of the Apostles, written by Luke, and once in Peter's first letter. So Paul actually never uses that word, Christians. So how does Paul typically refer uh, to those who have repented of their sins and believed, you know, have faith that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel's expectations? How does he refer to those people? Well, by far the most common uh, and favorite way that Paul has for referring to those who have repented and believed is that they are in Christ. Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, over 160 times. And this idea of being united to Christ works both ways. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Uh, So in his letter to the believers in Galatia, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. Later in that letter, he says to them, he calls them my little children, and then he says, for whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And to the believers in Colossae, he talks about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and he says that it's a mystery. It's the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, now here in Romans 8, 9 through 11, Paul, uh, yet again, as he does in so many other places, addresses this reality of believers being those who are in Christ Jesus. And Christ is in them. You see this in verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you. Now, it's of course worth some pondering how Christ can be in you. Jesus uh, was fully God and fully man. That's a great mystery, but when we, when we say that Jesus was fully man, we believe that, you know, after being born in a manger, Jesus uh, had a body. His body physically died on the cross for sins, and his body was raised to newness of life. A glorified body, yes, but still a body. And it's a body that exists now in one place, in heaven, for you. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's what we say every time we recite the Apostles' Creed together each month. My point being that Jesus remains forever and eternity an embodied person, and as an embodied person, he is not present with us. He is in one place. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven. So how do we resolve this riddle that Jesus is in heaven, and yet he is in you? Well, in these verses, Paul correlates Christ being in you and you being in Christ with another spiritual reality. He says, the Spirit dwells in you. He says that three times. First, in verse 9, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, or assuming, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then he says it twice in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Referring to God the Father, God raised Jesus from the dead. If his spirit dwells in you, 
Then he who raised Jesus from the dead, again, God the Father, God will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now this is sort of a doctrinal way of formulating something that Jesus himself had said to the 12 disciples just before his death and, re- death and resurrection. Uh, he was telling them that he would depart soon, uh, referring not to his death, but to his ascension into heaven after his resurrection. He was telling them he would depart, and of course, they were shocked by this. They didn't expect that Jesus would be leaving them. But Jesus says to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is saying there kind of in relational terms the same thing that Paul is saying here in doctrinal terms. How does Jesus live in you? Well, he has gone away, but the Spirit has come to you. The Spirit dwells in you. In fact, it might not even be fair to call those doctrinal terms because it's, it's really a picture, an illustration. The Spirit dwells, makes a home in you. He takes up residence in you. So as one author put it, having the Spirit is the equivalent, indeed the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, and resurrected Christ indwelling us so that we are united to Christ as he is united to the Father. So how or in what sense are we united to Christ? was by the Spirit dwelling in us, making his home in us. This remains a somewhat mysterious reality, but what what are the benefits of this reality? Well, there are many. He gives us two in these first few verses. Uh, The Spirit gives life now, and then the Spirit gives life forever. Because the Spirit dwells in you, he gives life now, and he gives life forever. You see this in two phrases. The first there in verse 10, Paul says, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life. The Spirit, whose home address is in you, he dwells in you, is life now already. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And how is the Spirit life? Well, I think this is just what Paul has been saying up to this point in Romans 8. You have a sense of freedom from condemnation. You have a new quality of life, in other words. If you listen to the stories of people who become Christians, uh, conversion stories, they're often stories of breakthrough. Sometimes there's an immediate change. Addictions are broken or inexplicably inner guilt melts away. Uh, Conscience-stricken types feel that that wound is mended and, and so on. And then sometimes the stories aren't so sudden and dramatic But over time, the Spirit works these realities into the Christian. You're living as a freed slave because of righteousness, he says. Meaning, because Jesus was righteous. Because Jesus lived up to all of God's expectations, was perfect in all the ways that we're not. Because of that, we have freedom. No longer slaves to sin and law. No longer obligated to prove ourselves by our achievements. And this is the freedom that the Christian has, you know, to be truly happy, to be truly alive, to have a certain buoyancy of spirit, which is the distinctive kind of life that the spirit gives. You know that you aren't condemned. You live as a person who's not dragging your chains around with you. And so the spirit gives this new quality of life. And then secondly, the second benefit, the spirit gives life forever. And the second phrase there in verse 11 that I want you to notice is this. 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it's, it's through the spirit of God that God will give life to your mortal bodies in the future. He takes here the resurrection as a kind of template for all of God's children. The kind of resurrection that Jesus experienced, you will too. His body was put in the ground, and yours will be too. His stone was rolled away, and your tombstone will not keep you in the ground. His body was reconstituted, and so will yours be. He ascended into the heaven, as in, into heaven and is in the presence of the Father forever, and you will be too. Permanent life with the Father. This is what is being guaranteed to us. So the Spirit gives new quality of life and new length of life. This is the first of the gifts that he brings. If you are one of those who are in Christ, then you have freedom from condemnation. And now Paul says, the Spirit gives life. And then as we move into verses 12 and 13, we see another big dynamic of life in the Spirit, which is that the Spirit gives holiness. The Spirit gives holiness. So in these two verses, uh, verses 12 and 13, Paul contrasts two ways of living. Living according to the flesh and living by the Spirit. So you look at verse 12, he mentions the first of these, living by the flesh. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So he says, we are debtors but not to the flesh. You think of the flesh, the desires, the impulses, the bodies as uh, collection agencies, you know, hired to squeeze out of you the response they want. The collection agency of the flesh keeps calling, keeps harassing you. And Paul says, you don't need to answer the phone. You don't need to go to the door. Just ignore it. Better yet, take a shotgun with you because their claims are false. You are a debtor, but not to the desires of the flesh. So when those desires come calling, turn off the lights. Pretend you're not home. And what is the flesh that Paul refers to here? Well, a few years before uh, he wrote this letter to the Jew and Gentile Christians in Rome, Paul wrote another letter to those who are in Christ in Galatia. And in that letter, Paul talks about this same thing, the desires of the flesh versus the desires of the Spirit. And there in Galatians 5.19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh. Same thing as the flesh here in Romans 8. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he goes on to list them. He says, uh, The works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. It's quite a list. Uh, Having an affair, uh, drunken orgies. Yeah, those are on the list, but they're on the same list with jealousy, strife, anger. You know, there's a certain parity or equality of sins. Not all sins have the same immediate consequences, Uh, but they're all equally sinful. All sins are not equal, uh, but all sins are equally sinful. So, you know, some of us pride ourselves for not indulging certain sins on this list, and yet you may hang out over here on the other part of the list. Or maybe you find yourself at the very end of this list where he says, 
and things like these. Paul's point in Romans 8 is that you owe the flesh nothing. You owe these desires nothing. Now, Paul never explicitly finishes that comment. He says, you are a debtor, not to the flesh, and you think you'll say, but rather you are a debtor to the spirit, but that's not actually what he says. However, that's the, that's the thrust of this whole contrast. If the spirit has granted you life, then you are a debtor to the spirit. And what must you pay? You must live according to the spirit. If you live as a debtor to the spirit, then you will truly live. And this is the second half of verse 13. But if by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So to live according to the spirit means to put to death the deeds of the body. The good old King James Version says, mortify the deeds of the body. And this is the primary duty of debtors, to kill, to murder, to put to death the deeds of the body. John Owen says, you better not neglect this duty for one day of your life. Famously, it says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And what are those deeds of the body that must be put to death? Well, it's certainly that list of sins that we just read, um, but it's important to note that the deeds of the body includes the desires that lead to those deeds. Deeds of the body encompasses the source of those deeds. Where does it come from? What's the root? It's just like when pulling up weeds, you want to kill the whole thing, not just rip off the leaves, but go after the root or it will grow back. So with sin, you never, never just stop at killing an action. You always want to go at the root. To kill the action alone is actually dangerous. You must always apply your efforts to the desires that give birth to those deeds. So deeds of the body is both those deep impulses or our inner inclinations to bad habits as well as uh, those habits of sin that actually form out of those desires. Benjamin Rush You may recognize that name, signer of the Declaration of Independence and a physician known for uh, bleeding. And evidently, he did a lot of studying of drunkards. Today, we call them alcoholics. He gives uh, an account of an interview with a drunkard. He says, a man who, over the course of um, four weeks, while under treatment of inebriety or alcoholism, secretly drank the alcohol from six jars containing morbid specimens. On asking him why he committed this loathsome act, he replied, Sir, it is as impossible for me to control this diseased appetite as it is for me to control the pulsations of my heart. Were a keg of rum in one corner of the room, and were a cannon constantly discharging balls between me and it, I could not refrain from passing before that cannon in order to get that rum." We all resonate with that guy, don't we? You know, maybe not quite to the same extent, but we all have that kind of compulsive nature to destroy ourselves by sin. And yet, whether you're a Christian or not, we all want to be better people. Uh, the Amazon charts reported the most read books of the week. This is from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the top 20 most read books of the week, the number one was an expose about Donald Trump in the White House. Then there were a few memoirs. But then 12 out of those 20 were books about becoming better people. 
uh, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson and The Power of Habit, Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, the How to Win Friends and Influence People, the, these books like this. We want to be better people, and the Christian wants to be a better person, but wants something more than that. The Christian is a person who desperately wants to please the Father. You have a strong inner compulsion to please God with your life. You want the Spirit who dwells in you to be pleased by the things that you think about and the things that you do in your solitude. So how do you reconcile these two things? We'd run in front of a cannon to indulge momentary impulses. You desperately want to please the Father. How do you reconcile these things? How do you put those deeds of the body to death? John Owen, a uh, 17th century English pastor and theologian, probably the greatest English theologian, uh, preached a series of sermons on the second half of verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. A whole sermon series on that half sentence. And it was eventually published as a book called The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, Owen says that mortification or, or to kill sin doesn't necessarily mean the total elimination of sin. That is the target we aim at, but we won't hit that target until we get to heaven. Uh, as long as we live here, sin lives with us. So mortification is not necessarily total elimination of sin. And then he says, mortification is also not concealment of sin. It's not just hiding sin so that others don't see them. Mortification also is not diverting your attention to other things, and mortification is not occasional victories before cycling back into habitual sin. Okay, so John, what is mortification of sin? John Owen says mortification of sin consists of three things, habitual weakening, constant fighting, and frequent success. Habitual weakening, constant fighting, and frequent success. So the first, habitual weakening, he says, this addresses the inner desires, uh, our bent towards sin. We want a habitual weakening of those inner desires to sin. He says, some sins are more combustible than others. Uh, they're such that just one tiny little temptation is all it takes to ignite a great sin. So we have to first habitually weaken the strength of those desires. How do we do this? It says one way to habitually weaken the inner impulses is to cultivate or develop countervailing impulses. Uh, if you are regularly uh, gripped by greed, then you know, practice generosity. If you are lured away by lust frequently, then work on purity, cultivating pure thoughts in your mind. If anger is uh, constantly nagging at you, then develop gentleness and patience and peace toward others. If you're pulled by pride, work on humility and, and so on. You have to weaken the root by developing uh, contrary impulses, con contrary sort of desires in the heart. This is how you habitually weaken the desires. And then he says the second step is constant fighting, constant fighting against sin. This addresses the action of sins, the, the deeds of the sin. And con constant fighting, the, this assumes you know you have an enemy. You know you have an enemy. You know what your sins are. 
Do you know what sins are fighting against you or tempting you or waging war on you? Do you know what those sins are? You know your enemy. And then you know the strategy of the enemy. If there's going to be constant fighting, you have to know what the strategy of the enemy is, how these temptations come to you, how you experience them, how you've fallen to temptation in the past. And then uh, knowing your enemy, knowing their strategy, and then giving the enemy wounds daily. Owen says, give it new wounds, new blows every day. What wounds are you giving to your sin? You know, you can plan this. What's your besetting sin? What sin are you struggling with? What blow are you going to give it today? How are you going to wound that sin today? There has to be constant fighting against sin. And then the third piece of his advice, a description of what mortification is, is frequent success. Not just avoiding temptation, but seeing when temptation comes, being able to recognize when the temptation is coming. You know, you experience temptation frequently. You should be able to sense when it's coming on, when you are being tempted. And he says immediately then, identifying what's happening, you should take that temptation to the law of God and the love of Christ. Take it to the law of God and the love of Christ. God's law says no to this sin. God's love sent Christ to the cross to die for this sin. And you address yourself in regards to this sin in that manner. And if you want to deal with your sin, then this must be your strategy. This is mortification of sin, uh, habitual weakening, constant fighting, and frequent success. And, and Paul says, thankfully, Paul says that those who are in Christ have power for this fight. If you are in Christ, you put to death the deeds of the body, he says here, by the Spirit. By the Spirit. So Paul has said that sin indwells us. Said that back in chapter 7. We may be in Christ, but sin um, still dwells within us. It, It still camps out in us like an unwelcome squatter. But now Paul says, the Spirit dwells within you. If you're in Christ, the Spirit dwells within you and empowers you to do these very things we want to do. He has given us life. We are a debtor to put to death the deeds of the body, and he empowers us to do that. Overcoming sin, then, is not our work applied to our old nature, but it's the work of the Spirit's empowering applied by our new nature. So one author refers to the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. God's empowering presence. And I think that's true and helpful, and yet, as another person put it, the Holy Spirit is not an anonymous magnitude and force. Is not an anonymous magnitude and force. In other words, you're not overtaken by a non-rational force. No, God himself is with you, indwelling you in the person of the Spirit. And the Spirit is like your muscle for fighting against sin. He empowers you. You won't, won't make an inch of progress in fighting against sin apart from the Spirit. He is the power, the agency. You put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, and yet you must still exert effort. You must strive to put to death the deeds of the body. So the Spirit's power doesn't absolve the Christian of responsibility. Again, Owen says, the Spirit doesn't work our mortification in us in a way that keeps it from being genuinely an act of our own obedience. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. 
So again, the spirit is personal. It's not a non-rational force that overtakes you. So his empowering is relational, not a takeover. So one suggestion for you is pray to the Holy Spirit. Try praying to the Spirit about these things. I think most Christians are comfortable addressing the Father in prayer. I think that's typically how I hear Christians pray, is addressing the Father. I think we're also comfortable addressing Jesus in our prayers as well, especially in giving thanks for his um, saving work on the cross and resurrection. But I rarely hear us addressing the Spirit. Maybe you feel hesitant to pray to the Spirit. Is that okay? Can I pray to the Spirit, even though I'm not Pentecostal? Yes, you should pray to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, you know, within the Trinity, the the Spirit has the distinctive work of empowering us to live in the way that God wants us to live. If you are struggling to live in that way, pray to the Holy Spirit. Seek his help. This is the very thing he does for us. By the Spirit is the way we put to death the deeds of the body. So let the Spirit be your conversation partner in your attempts to uh, gain victory over sin. Listen, the Spirit will do his work in his people regardless of whether or not you are familiar with him and his his work in your life. The Son uh, gives light and warmth whether or not you understand the workings of the solar system. And the Spirit will do his work in his people, whether or not they are sensitive to his ways. And yet, for lack of familiarity with his working and sensitivity to his leading, uh, many Christians are left at a great disadvantage in their communion with God and their pursuit of holiness. So, The Spirit empowers those who are in Christ to kill sin. Let's go to him then for help in this. And then third, the third gift that the Spirit brings to those who are in Christ is the gift of assurance. The Spirit gives assurance. You see this in verses uh, 14 through 17. Look at verse 14. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, we have to stop at this point just before moving on and notice that part of what Paul is teaching is contained in the first word of verse 14, just that little word for. So there are some big truths in verse 13 about the Spirit empowering us to put to death the deeds of the body. And there are some more big truths in verse 14 and following about being sons of God. But there's also a big truth in how verse 14 relates to verse 13. A big truth that we wouldn't want to miss there also. If you are being led by the Spirit, if the Spirit is empowering you to put to death the deeds of the body, you know, even if that's not... um, as frequent as you'd like it to be, even if it's not constant victory on every front all the time, still, if the Spirit is leading you to kill sin and to bear good fruit, then you are sons of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons should look like their father. The Spirit makes us sons And this is the reason we ought to put to death the deeds of the body. Sonship involves similarity, likeness uh, in our whole way of life, our conduct, in our obedience. 
Sonship, then, is the, the grand motive for sanctified living. This is why we want to look like God. True children want to look like the Father. And this is the characteristic work of the Spirit. The Spirit is leading us to look like God. He says, all who are led by God are sons of God. Being led by the Spirit, then, is not about decision-making. You know, what the Spirit normally leads people to is holiness, obeying God with your way of life. So when it comes to decision-making, which school should I go to? Which career should I pursue? Should I date this person or not? Should I marry this person or not? We shouldn't normally attribute those decisions to the Holy Spirit. He may not want to be blamed for many of the silly decisions that Christians make in his name. No, when Paul talks about the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's leading is a matter of killing sin and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit leads us to. And this is what the Spirit does in all of those who are sons of God. Sons of God. What a title. And so Paul begins one of the most beautiful descriptions of Christian assurance and security anywhere in the Bible. You see in verse 15, he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It is a contrast in these verses then between the spirit of slavery and the spirit of adoption as sons. Slavery and sonship. If you are in Christ, then you are not slaves, but you are sons. Now, if you've been tracking with us through this series in Romans, you may remember that back in chapter 6, Paul had said that those who are in Christ are not enslaved to sin and are no longer enslaved to the law. Those are related ideas. You're not a slave to sin and law. But then Paul says, we're all slaves. It's fundamental to being a human. You're controlled by someone. Rebecca Pippert said, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. I think that's basically in line with what Paul is saying back there in chapter 6. We're all slaves. If you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin and law. You are now a slave to God and righteousness. But now, in Romans 8, he somewhat offsets that metaphor from Romans 6. You are slaves in the sense that you have taken God as your Lord. You acknowledge him as king and ruler over your life. But you are not slaves in the sense of fearing God's displeasure. You are not slaves as though you might suffer his wrath for your misdeeds. You are not slaves as though you live at a distance and have no access to him. No, Paul says something much better, much harder to believe, but so much better. You are not merely slaves of God, though you are that. You are sons of God, adopted by the spirit of adoption into the father's family. And your position as children of God now is so secure, so certain that you can relate to God in much the same way that Christ did. In fact, Jesus was the first one who addressed God as Abba, Father. And it indicated the closeness of address, the warmth of the relationship, the security and certainty that was there. 
In the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus describes his closeness to the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. And he prays for his followers that they would experience fellowship, oneness with God the Father in the same way that Christ does with the Father. And this name, Abba, Father, indicates that closeness, that warmth and security of relation, that father-son relationship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father. Now, all God's children enjoy that certainty and security. What a high privilege. Now, I hate to break it to you, but Abba doesn't mean daddy. Someone fabricated that concept 50 years ago, and it has become commonplace, but it's simply not true. It's perhaps even irreverent, depending on how it's applied. Abba was used by adults in solemn and respectful address to their parents, as well as by children, and so it cannot mean daddy. But it does indicate this confident closeness, this certain security. Notice Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. This isn't a rational calculation of the relationship. This isn't going to the court, you know, to check the files and pull up a birth certificate to confirm the Father. This is the reflexive cry of the soul. And then Paul says something more of this in verse 16. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit not only grants that adoption, he is the Spirit of adoption, but he also assures us that we are adopted, that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit gives the sense of this reality. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin told this story of a man uh, walking along the road with his little boy, and they were holding hands, father and son, son and father. The little boy knows that this man is his father and knows that his father loves him. But suddenly as they're walking, the father stops, bends down, picks up his little boy in his arms and wraps his arms around him and gives him a big hug and kisses him on the head and whispers something in his ear, maybe, I love you. And then puts him back down and they keep walking along. The boy is no more a son after that hug than he was before. The status is unchanged. But how much greater to know this father has his arms wrapped around you and to hear his voice whispering in your ear, I love you. This is what the spirit does. This is what it means that the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He assures to us, gives us the sense of this reality, the status that we have as children of God. The spirit confirms the reality of it. We are beloved sons and daughters of God. How we need to hear the spirit's voice speaking that to us. That is who we are more fundamental than anything else about our identity is that we are beloved sons and daughters of God. You want to answer that question, who am I? We're tempted to answer that in so many different ways. I am what I do. I am the collection of my successes from this past week or the collection of my failures from this past week. I am what I have, the collection of everything that I've amassed with my life. I am what I feel. I am what other people say about me. 
their affirmation or their denial. But the Spirit says, you are beloved sons and daughters of God. So listen, you can build your identity on any of those other things, but any kind of identity building that you construct will never be up to code. This Spirit-given identity is what we need. And it has to become more fundamental and pervasive than any other aspect of our identity. So then we don't each construct identity for ourselves based on our own choices and preferences. We are given an identity by the Father. And this is a fundamental distinction between Western secular thought and Christianity. Secularism says we each construct our identity. Christianity says we inherit our identity from God, a received, not a constructed identity. So then what are those days that you don't feel it? When you don't hear the spirit in your spirit bearing witness? Romans chapter 8 holds together two things. First, a status. You are in Christ. You are sons of God. You are children of God. Later in this chapter, Paul will say, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in heaven above or earth below can separate you from the love of God. This is unshakable union. But then second, Paul speaks not only of a status, but also of experience. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit causes us to cry out. But even on those days when your experience is faint, your status is is fixed. It's unchanging. Your sense or confidence about these things may be more pronounced on Sunday than on Friday, but your status is fixed. And then the Spirit adds, as someone said this week, the subjective sense of the gospel, the subjective experience of these things. C.S. Lewis said, though, the sense of the presence is a superadded gift for which we give thanks when it comes. In other words, not having that sense does not change the status. Now, we may be overly prone to think about salvation, our conversion, in overly um, doctrinal or rational or intellectual terms. Paul is very theological and rhetorical, so that's fine, but he reminds us here not to ignore the emotional or psychological kind of side of things. We should retreat to our status when our emotions fail us. <clears throat> but there may be times when doctrinal formulations seem dry, and we go then to the Spirit's cry in our hearts that we are beloved children of God, the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit. We are beloved children. We've been talking about the distinctive work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't know how often you think about this supernatural element of Christian living. Perhaps you rarely think of the Spirit. You know by experience that your life is very ordinary. Maybe you don't often think of these supernatural elements of the Christian life. 
but the Spirit is still at work in us, reminding us that we are freed from condemnation and giving us that new quality of life that goes along with that reality. The Spirit assists us in putting to death the deeds of the body and the Spirit assures us that we are beloved children of God. These are the grand privileges of the Christian and this wonderful life in Christ. So as we conclude, let's take a moment to reflect on God's kindness to us and the goodness of the Spirit of God and to ask him for more of this work in us. And then I'll close us in prayer in just a moment.